I'm reading from Luke 10:25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him put to put him to the test and said, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself." And he said to him, "You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live." But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And when whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thanks, Marianne. Um, A lot of heavy stuff that we're looking at today as we look at this call. And I'm going to jump into that for a moment. Uh, But wanted to give one final reminder. This is a final reminder because Ethnos Conference is next Saturday. It's kind of unbelievable. It's here next Saturday. Uh, ethnosbaltimore.org if you have not yet registered for our theme of race in the church a matter of justice uh, we've been doing a lot of prayer we're really excited about this so we want you to be there at this point you've heard about it God willing enough if you don't know what it is check ethnosbaltimore.org and we will see you next Saturday um, we've got a little bit going on in our nation I, I heard there's an event going on Tuesday I think um, something called an election I know we barely heard about it but um I didn't choose to do a sermon on it just because I just don't want, I didn't want to, but I wanted to, <laughs> I want to give a few quick words about the election. Um, here are my points. Some of you in this room, you have the right to vote because of just, you were born in this nation or you have certain privileges and it's a great right. And I, I feel you should exercise that right if you have it. Next point. Though you have the right, to vote as an American, as a Christian, you have the freedom to not vote for a particular candidate if you feel that doing so would undermine your Christian faith, and that's your primary citizenship. I I, I love America, but your primary citizenship, if you follow Jesus, is the kingdom of God, so that should be directing your paths. Here's my next point. I will not tell you who you should vote for as a Christian. So we're not putting up a video here to encourage you. This is the Christian approach to voting. This is the godly. We're not going to do that. But I believe we are in an... This is no more important season than others, but we are in a weird season here where I think in our particular election season, the above principle I just described, I believe it applies to both main party candidates. I believe, and hear me carefully, I believe it would not be inappropriate if you considered abstaining rather than voting for either either of them as God leads you. I'm not telling you don't vote, 
But I don't think you would be going as the will of God if you choose, as you're led by God, to abstain from one of these two candidates. And here's my last thing. Whatever the results of November 8th, 11.59 p.m., and it might go on after that, on November 9th, we should commit, as Scripture calls us, to pray for whoever the president is at that time. Amen? As much as you might not like him or her or whoever it is, we commit to praying for our leaders and we also commit to loving one another, no matter who that person supported in the election. Amen? Even though you've been following their Facebook and you've been tempted to defriend them, because you're sick of all their shares, you will commit to loving them, not because of who they vote or who they support. Amen? We need to get back to that. We need to get back to that. So join me in praying. We're going to pray for a sermon, but we're also going to pray for our country for, for a moment here. So join me. Lord... Help us. A lot, of a, a lot of our country is just angry right now, confused, mad, fearful, worried, wondering if this is the apocalypse. And maybe even some of us are like that. But Lord, would we put our hope that we would pray? We pray hard. We pray for our nation. We ask for godly leadership. We ask for the leading of your spirit within both of these main candidates and others. Would you turn their hearts to you? But Lord, ultimately, we put our faith in a larger kingdom than just the one of this nation. And will we submit to that before anything else, Lord? And we would love our neighbor. We would love one another. No matter what political beliefs we have. No matter what ideologies we carry. We commit to loving one another. We commit to loving these candidates as well, Lord. We pray, we pray for them right now. We pray for Mrs. Clinton. We pray for Mr. Trump. We pray for their hearts to turn to you. Lord, we pray just as we pray that you would transform us, transform them, Lord. Whoever our president would be. So help us, Lord. We need your mercy as a nation. And Lord, even right now as we go into your word, would you just continue to remind us this countercultural message, what it means to follow you as it means for our relationships with one another. So guide us, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're continuing the series, been going through this fall, this fall called Follow, as we're looking at some of Jesus' teaching as he invites people to follow him. What are some of the stuff he says? And as Marianne read for us, we're looking at today at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And let's just jump right into it. We see starting in verse 25, you got a lawyer. And, um, we, you know, this lawyer, we're assuming he's a bright person. He asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And this expert in the law, he knows his stuff, right? We're going to find out he knows a lot of stuff here. He replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus is telling him as he asked, how do I find eternal life? Here's how you find life and instructing and coming from the guy's own mouths. What does it mean to fully love God with your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, your vitality, even with your mind? What Jesus is saying is this is a holistic following of God. It's not just intellectual. It's not just about your mind. It's not just about what you do, just your strength, your activity. It's not just about what you feel. It's all of that. incorporates all of it. It's all of who you are. That's what it means to follow God, all of your being. So Jesus gives that word, and he follows what the guy said, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And when Jesus said, go, good, good. This guy should have said, dig it. Okay, dig in, repent, because he's not doing these things, and, and seek to follow God, but the lawyer doesn't stop. He presses it. And, and we read here, right? But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So in order to justify himself, he asked his question, who's my neighbor? And, and before we dig into it more, just a, a good thought here. One of the things that Jesus saves us from, and for some of us, some, some of the things Jesus saves us from is our destructive behaviors, like our train wreck type of stuff. Maybe you got really bad habits. You've got really like obvious sin. You're the type of person, you come here, the person next to you know, knows what your sin is because they can smell it on you, right? It's that obvious. Some of us, that's where Jesus saves us from. Praise God. But here's the radical thing that for I think some of us, this really hits home. Jesus doesn't just save us from our bad stuff. Jesus also saves us from following the rules. Jesus saves them from following rules. What I mean by that is because we can follow rules. We can live our life in the way that maybe we feel God is telling us to, or maybe we have our own internal rules and think that that will save us. Think that somehow living our lives in a certain way, what we think is good, that will somehow make us more right before God. It will justify us make us feel like we're being good people. And, and the thing is, often, if that's our definition of what it means to be saved, to live according to our rules, it becomes really easy to start to look down on other people. You know what leads to self-righteousness and judgment of others? Is when you've got an internal set of rules, this is what a good person does. This is what a good citizen does. This is what how a man should behave. This is how a good woman, a woman should do it. This is how a grandparent should be. This is how a parent should act. This is how a student should be. This is how a hard worker should be. And what happens is we've got this whole set of rules and we say, obeying that is what makes me a good person or not. And it's really easy to start to look down on other people who don't follow that standard. So that's what this guy's doing here. When he asks, who's my neighbor? He thinks Jesus is going to say, oh, you know, like your homies back at home, your friends, your neighbors, your family, the people you're with all the time, the people that you love, those are your neighbors. Because this guy's going to be able to say, oh, yeah, I do all that. Man, go ask Cousin Jimmy how much I helped him out when he was going through a problem. And, you know, Mama, when she needed my help, I was right there to help out. Oh, and the guy that lives next to us, uh, you know, I'm always there to help out. When they needed some building done on their house, I'm always there to sacrifice and give. Oh, I love my neighbor. And thinking Jesus is going to say, okay, well, you're doing it. Great job. And everyone in the crowd is like, bravo, this is the man. You want to know how to follow Jesus? look to this guy because he just asked him and Jesus just affirmed he loves his neighbor. He's generous. He's kind. He wants to justify himself when he's asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, as he's so wise to do, he's just going to wreck this guy's (laughs) self-righteousness. If you've read ahead, I mean, it gets good, right? Because Jesus replied, your man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this is a real road here. It's about 17 miles long, and the road drops about 3,000 feet along the way. So when he's saying going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he literally meant really going down. It's, it's like a path going 3,000 feet all along. So this would be like uh, if you're new to Baltimore, and, and you're getting to know some place, and you're talking to some folks who know the city, and they say, yeah, you know, after like 9 p.m., don't go to that neighborhood and walk around. Don't go to this street. It's like that. 
this is not one of those roads you would be journeying, especially late at night on your own. It's known to be a dangerous road. It's not a good one to be by yourself. So it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed, leaving him half dead. And, And what we learn here, one of the ways that we identify who is one of us, one of us, whatever that means, right? Who is not one of us is by our clothing. You know, one of the ways you can have markers on who someone is, whether they're someone you could hang with, is you just look at their clothes. Oh, that's that's like an old Navy type. Oh, he wears baggy T-shirts. Oh, uh, or their dialect. I mean, that's another one that's a straight giveaway, right? You can be in Baltimore and talk to someone for 30 seconds. You know whether they are from here or not, right? The dialect... Um, I mean, it's like the joke. I mean, I, again, I don't mean to be profiling, but realistic, if I go out for lunch and then I see someone walking around with a plaid shirt, I'm going to assume they're not a lumberjack at this point. <laughs> they're probably like hipster transplant in Baltimore. I mean, our clothes are a giveaway of who we are. So the fact that this traveler is stripped, naked, unconscious, he's taken these markers away, which means you and I, a casual observer, they won't know who he is. He's just someone. It's going to be impossible to know, is he one of us or not? You won't know. So we see the encounters he has then. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I don't know about you. I was raised in church. Whenever I heard the story taught, and it was like little felt characters, right? When it came time for this felt character of the priest, it was always like this really arrogant-looking person with his nose up. You know, like really haughty-looking. Really kind of a guy that none of us are like, right? But just this arrogant, don't be like this guy, because he looks down on people walking by. He's probably riding by because he's rich. Just, oh, I don't, I don't associate with the commoners of that. Oh, look at that. You know, I, that's how I fit. But we have to understand the context to be able to grasp a little more why he's doing what he's doing here. Because the priest is most likely coming back after two weeks of serving in the temple. This is his job. And, and if he gets even within six feet of this um, person on the road, he's going to become ritualistically unclean because he's been serving God. He, he's a, a religious man. So if he gets within six feet of him or even touches him, the law will deem him unclean ceremonially. And he's going to have to climb back up that road back to Jerusalem because he's unclean. He can't go home. And he's going to have to do the rites of purification, which are going to have to, part of it require getting a cow and burning it into ash. I mean, this is a lot to get pure. It's going to take at least seven days. And he's going to have to stand at the eastern gate along with everyone else who's unclean, waiting for a priest to help them to get clean. And since he's a priest, he's got to wait for someone who's at least his level or higher to be able to help him become unclean or help him become clean, to purify him. So he'd be filled with shame. As much as he wants to help this guy, right? He'd be filled with shame. He'd be filled with guilt. He'd be out a whole bunch of money because, again, he got to buy a cow even though you're going to burn it to ash. It's it's his time taken away. He's unable to take uh, offerings during that time, which are his pay. It'd be like saying, I give up my paycheck for these weeks. it means he's not just going to suffer, but his family's going to suffer too. He won't be able to take care of his family all to help this stranger on the roads. So 
all I'm saying is we got to be careful not to judge this guy too harshly. Man, what a jerk. Walking by and, you know, see someone obviously in need and just leave him. Oh, you haughty priest. Oh, you religious people. I hate religious people just walking by. Well, no, there's probably reasons why. It, it would be unbelievably costly for him to engage this man on the road. So he sees him and he goes by without helping. And then the next person come along, comes along. So we see likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And the Levite, it's like junior varsity level, right? He's not a full priest, but he also serves in the temple. He probably assists the priest, um, but he's not as affluent. He, he's not that rich. So he's coming. And if you're assuming a 17-mile road and, and looking down, you can see what's going on ahead of you, right? So most likely, he's traveling, coming back from Jerusalem. He looks down the road. He sees this priest riding by, and, and he passed by. He didn't stop to help. So he's probably thinking, the Levite's thinking, well, why should I do it then? I mean, I've got even less than this priest does. I've got more to lose than he does. I don't have as much. You know, let the rich people help the poor. Let those with wealth, let them reach out and stop and give up because they have enough to sacrifice. I'm struggling. My family got to eat too. How am I going to stop to help this person? So he goes by as well. And here's where the story would have grown scandalous. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And, and it's real important to know why Jesus chooses a Samaritan here. Because the Samaritans, they were mixed breed by, by a history. They were half Jews and half Samaritans. And when Israel, in their history, when they were in captivity... Uh, Samaritans, how they came about was the captives came into the land of Israel and the people who were still there, Israelites, they married some of their captors and they had children. So these were considered by purebred Jews as dirty mongrels, half-breed, mixed-breed, whatever you want to call it, not fully Jew, not fully honoring God. And there were actually prayers in the synagogue during this time here where people would ask God, not to give forgiveness. Don't grant grace to the Samaritans because they're not pure. This is like strong hate here. This is historically driven enmity here. So, and, and you also got to know the Samaritan, he's not a Gentile. So it's not like he's released from some of those same laws of being clean and ritually um, he can get unclean as well. He has the same standards upon him as the priest and the Levite but the Samaritan still acts in mercy. And that's what we see here. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he puts him on his animal. He, he goes to the inn. He checks on him. He, he stays the night, takes care of his wounds, fixes him up. And, and if this guy wakes up the next day and just maybe jets on his own, he pays up front. So to make sure to cover for this guy, he pays these two denarii. He said, yo, if this guy leaves, I'll cover it. I'll take care of him. You know me. I'm showing you my face. I'm responsible for him. So he takes ownership. He shows up. He shows who he is. I'll pay whatever more you need me to pay. He assumes the risk. 
And then Jesus, right, punchline, he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So we've got this initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, yo, it's all about pursuing God with everything that you have. All of your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. And, and, and go and do... Um, and, and it's real. I mean, that's real, and it needs to be taken seriously. And I think for some of us, maybe we tend to err more on the side of, we, we look at, like, mercy activities and being out in the community, maybe serving the poor, walking with the broken. We say, you know what? That's really what the church should be doing. Get rid of the sitting in a room and singing songs and teaching the Bible. We need to be people who are out there. That's what church should really be doing. And I would suggest... Well, it's not a full, complete picture of what we should be. Yeah, we should, but we're also supposed to fully uh, follow God with all that we have, enrich our minds, enrich our hands, enrich our souls, receive the word. But Jesus also includes your love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus' story shows anyone who needs help. There's no qualifications there's not cultural boundaries. There's no uh, clothing kind of def- differentials. Whoever needs help, whoever's broken, whoever's life looks like it's kind of crumbling, that's the person who is your neighbor. And this is good for those of us in the room. Maybe we're more of like following Jesus as like a classroom deal. Like we love learning theology. We love learning about Jesus. We love reading. We love enrich, And that's all good. But maybe the word for us on that end is it's following Jesus is not just about the information you accumulate if you're not out there actually loving someone. And Jesus takes these two extremes that are often represented in church. The, oh, it's all about what you do in serving and mercy, or it's all about what you learn and your th- solid doctrine and theology. He brings it together. He says, you don't do one without the other. If all you have is good doctrine but it doesn't change the way that you live, the way you love your neighbor, then your Christianity is just like a book, like a manual that you never use. It's like buying a car and having that thing just when you have a problem, you pick it up and open. That's all Christianity is if if we're never actually living it out. Or if you're just a humanitarian and you're all just about taking care of felt needs, but then you don't address the deeper issues of the soul... That's also not the full expression of the gospel. Both of these are fiercely important. And why we're looking at the story today, this really gets to the heart of why we talk about being people of mercy, just like we saw with our deacons. Why do we spend time on these matters? Why do we make ourselves available to those who are hurting? Because you really have to imagine this man. Put yourself as if you're in that that setting as Jesus is telling the story to this uh, lawyer, smart guy. Because you can imagine his face, what he looks like as he's listening to Jesus tell the story. You have to picture his face like darkening after every character that's introduced. As Jesus brings every new character and ultimately to the point that the hero of this story is a Samaritan, this guy's probably like burning up by this point. 
And it's, if it's difficult for you to understand why this would be so scandalous, imagine I'm up here and I'm, I'm preaching, I'm telling you a story, an illustration, and I make the hero some, some person from Westboro Baptist Church who's like at a military funeral picketing, and I make them the hero. You're going to get offended. Or, or maybe I, I, I take the terrorist who shoots up a nightclub, and I say, that's our hero. That's the one who you should be emulating, how they respond here. I mean, it, picture someone who is repugnant to you being made the hero. It's scandalous. Because Jesus' point to this lawyer was, dude, you think you are the hero, and you're waiting for me to give you the answers like you'd be the hero? You're not the hero. You're that poor guy lying in your pool of your own blood on the street. That, 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 that's actually you. Jesus' goal was to show this law expert he thought he was spiritually rich. Um, he's actually spiritually bankrupt. I'm trying to show you, you need me. Maybe Jesus was trying to show this, um, this guy who was convinced of how good he was by trying to show him his own helpless condition, a conviction, con- condition, and saying, you're like that guy who has no way to help himself, and you're lying on the side of the road desperate, and you need someone to take care of you. Otherwise, you're just going to die there. To show the law expert that he was poor, and for him to be prepared to speak the spiritual riches of the mercy of God. Village Church, I mean, that's the gospel. That's the gospel for this man here. But, I mean, it's the gospel for you and I as well. That though each one of us, and it looks, it looks different for every one of us, but each one of us, we're all lying in our own blood, spiritually bankrupt. We're lost, apart from God, yet God, in his mercy, provides spiritual wealth for us. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 8 9, it, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And the scandal of this message of the cross is that Jesus, the Son, who had every access to every richness, he was the king, he was the creator, that he was made poor to the point of giving his life so that spiritual riches could be made, to be, could be given to those who believe. That's the scandal of the gospel. And guys, this is key. We, we really got because being kind to others, this is not infomercial time. I don't know how late you watch TV, but if you watch TV late at night, there's a certain point that certain commercials start coming on the TV, right? Oh, for that one grande coffee you had today, you could have fed three whole villages and fill in your blank country. Oh, you know, these poor little animals don't have half their hair left on their body because their owners threw them out. And you could be saving them and like sad Sarah McLaughlin songs in the background and just make you feel horrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I am miserable. I have so much and I'm so selfish. Yeah. Here's my credit card. And, And you just feel bad, guilty, and maybe you're motivated to help. But that's not Christian mercy. Yeah, we should be convicted. But Christian mercy, the reason that we are kind to others in mercy, is not just because that's what good people do. It's not just because it's the holiday time and it's time to be generous givers, as, as great as that is. Or it's because we have so much. And I look across you guys because you're all so wealthy, right? And say, you have so much. Look at those wonderful clothes you wear and the houses you have with actual heat. Think about the person on the street who does it. Come on, pony up. I mean, that's not the Christian motivation for mercy either. 
Because the Christian motivation is if you and I, if we understand grace, if we understand this idea that we have received mercy through the work of Jesus while we were, while we were the undeserving enemies of God, we can have a heart for others. If we realize you and I, we were the ones spiritually just giving a middle finger up at God saying, whatever, I'm going to do my own thing. And yet God reached down through the mercy of Christ, took our life saying, no, you're mine. No, I'm going to save you. I'm not just going to rescue you riding in a horse. Uh, I'm going to go to this tree hanging there. I call it a cross and I'm going to give my own life so that you can be rescued. Even though you don't deserve it. Even though you actually deserve wrath. And when we get that, that's when we start to realize we display the same heart of love for others. Not just because they deserve it. You don't have to be a Christian to show kindness to someone who deserves it. (laughs) The world can do that. That's what charity is, right? Christian mercy is we show kindness, we show generosity, we sacrifice, we love, we go as far as we can for people, not because they deserve it, but because we have received love even though we didn't deserve it. And in, in your car, in your bulletins there, you have a card for affordable Christmas, and we've been talking about that. And uh, we have affordable Christmas coming up on December um, December 10th. And for those of you who are newer to the church, this is one of the ways that we reach out into our neighborhood, into our city, and we invite our neighbors to come in and do Christmas shopping, literally to do Christmas shopping at a very, very, very reduced rate because we want to give people dignity. We're not just about giving handouts. We want to give people dignity to be able to say, I did Christmas shopping for my kids here. So you see the details there. We have an information meeting coming up on uh, Sunday, November 20th. I want to invite you all to be there. And you see some ways that you can get involved here. And as many as you're able to do here, I want to encourage you. One, donate. Maybe you want to donate gifts because ultimately, and we, we have a little starter, a little seed fund right here. Um, if this is all we got, there are going to be like two families that are happy. We want to get as many items as you see described that we can have as part of this market. So we're going to ask you to go buy some things and bring it. Bring it on Sunday. We're just going to see a pile being built up here that we're going to use for the market. Be generous. Go out. If for some of you it's difficult to go out and actually get stuff, donate financially. Give financially on top of your normal offerings and market saying affordable Christmas. And let that be maybe some of your holiday giving that I know some of us, we, we tend to want to give anyway during these seasons. Let that be part of your giving. So donate, give, and serve. Get involved in the actual market because we want this to be more than just an event. We want it to be a step for a relationship. We want to connect with our neighbors. We want to love our city. And, and I mean, if we take this connected to the sermon today, and guys, this is one of those sermons I've really had to sit and chew on. And it's one of those sermons where it's hard for me to really um, sleep at night as I develop it. Because the, the big thought that God was just pressing into my heart is that our concept of who is my neighbor in the city is far narrower than I think what God intends. We've got this definition of neighbor and we just think about the person who lives next door to us. Or we think about the person who has a lot in common with us. Or we, th- we think about the people, oh yeah, we've got kids the same age. Oh yeah, that's neighbor. Or we think about the people, oh, we, we both went to school. We, oh, we were both fairly educated. Oh, we watched the same shows on Netflix. Oh, we got something in common. Oh, we don't even have to work at this. 
that's the thing. The Christian God-driven definition of a neighbor is someone that you might have absolutely nothing in common with. Someone who might even repulse you. Someone maybe you have no things that you can connect on. God is calling us to say, that is who your neighbor is in the city. And here, here's the part that was making me a little restless this week, especially. Um, I think God is growing our church in different ways, in, in beautiful, good ways. And we celebrate that. But I think if we're not careful, um, we, can, we can grow into a church that's really existing mainly for to catch up with the gentrification going on in the city. And that's just a fancy word for saying a lot of hip young people are moving to the city because the city's cool now. Baltimore's not what it was 20 years ago. Oh, I want to live in the city. Sure. It's got great restaurants and great nightlife and the art scene and the culture and, and the, oh man, so many programs and, uh, you know, it's great. Yeah, of course I want to live in the city. I don't like the taxes. I don't like the garbage pickup sometimes, but I love the city. Um, it's too easy for the church to just exist to meet the needs of those and become a church for suburban transplants. Nice and pretty, nice and clean. Give us some nice material to keep us going during the week and forget the burning heart of mercy that God places within every single one of us. That's my heart. Um, and sometimes I think people think I'm dramatic when I say this, but if we just become a church that exists for people who are already looking for a church, who are, whose lives are fairly decent, I mean, just honestly, let's shut it down. <laughs> Let, let's go to a church that's doing, trying to do that. And again, I don't want to dismiss all of the heart, soul, mind, strength. That happens here too, and we need that. But it's got to be also expressed in going outside of ourselves. And if I can just be honest with you, church, I think we're becoming a little too ingrown. I think we're becoming a little too ingrown where God's desire is for us to always pour outside of ourselves. And there's a reason that the Bible uses these ministries of mercy to judge between true and false Christianity. Because our lives, if they're lived as we demonstrate mercy, it shows that we get the Christian message because the Christian faith is not, yeah, I worked hard to get where I am and anyone else can if they wanted enough. That's not the Christian message. That's moralism. It, the Christian says, I am only where I am by the sheer unmerited mercy and grace of God. That's the Christian message. And if that's the Christian message, then I give the same mercy and grace to others even if they're not at a point to fully receive it well. So let me ask you to stand with me as we respond. And I want to give most of, most of you here, I don't know everyone, but I want to give most of you the credit to feel, I don't think you're ungenerous. I look at your life, you're not ungenerous. You're kind. You're, you're extremely sacrificial. But where I want to encourage you to seek God Let's not just let that be to the people who we like. Let's not just let that to be the people who we've got a lot of com in common with naturally. But supernaturally, what would it look like for us to extend that same kind of mercy to those maybe in our minds we say don't deserve it? Because that's the Christian heart of mercy. 
And where that comes from is ultimately we need to be people who receive mercy. Today's goal is not to do the Christian infomercial where I just lay on you how miserable you are, how selfish, how suburban, how drenchified. Oh, we're all miserable. Okay, now go do it. And we get really mad and maybe we're generous for like a month. But then we just stop going to church because we don't want to feel guilty. Rather, that our service, our kindness, our generosity would be fueled out of the idea, I'm the one that's received mercy. I'm the one who's received mercy. I have been flooded by the mercy of God. So let me ask you, receive the mercy of God today by asking yourself these questions. How have you fallen short this week? How have you fallen short recently, whether it's God's standard or whether it's your own? How have you failed miserably recently in living this life? How have you not lived like you feel you should? Have you looked down on others that you feel fall short of your standards of what is right? Have you withheld mercy from anyone else? Have you been living a dual life? Are you not honoring God with all that you have? Whatever it might be for you, let that be an invitation to the cross. And can I invite you to consider this Jesus who died in your place when you deserve the wrath of God instead. He stood in your place, took the punishment you and I do. That's where mercy comes from. So receive the mercies of God this day, and this will lead to joyful thanksgiving, compassionate service. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for my friends here as we stand before you. Lord, it's just too easy for a church to become a place where we hear the same message we think we know and try to modify our behavior for a little bit more, try not to be found out. But Lord, perhaps you're inviting us just like, I believe you are showing mercy to this lawyer. You weren't hating him. You were trying to get him to a deeper place of needing you. And maybe you're doing the same thing with us here, Lord. You're trying to get us to stop just being good people who follow the rules, but rather realize where, where do we fall short? even in the silent places of our mind. And God, meet us there. Meet us there. Shower mercy upon us. And thank you, Lord, that's available to us in Jesus. Flood us, Lord, so that we have something to give. That mercy is not something that we're trying to develop within ourselves, but it's the natural outflow of what you've done to us. Maybe for some of us, Lord, we're even Christians, but it's been a long time since we've been thankful for that. So help us to sit on there, Lord wrestle with that God in the space so take some moments to pray I would encourage you before you just automatically come up to receive communion maybe you should sit on that for a little bit ask where your heart is and seek the mercies of Christ and if you are a Christian I would invite you during this time you can come up and take a piece of the wafer in the middle dip into the cup and remember the sacrifices of mercy that Christ showed us. Maybe you can pray. Maybe you can pray with one another, sing whatever you need to do to receive Christ's mercy that we might have mercy to give to others. Let's do that.